to create a really liberated, independent, post-colonial Korea, the left is obviously in a much more advantageous position. And you see this in polls taken in the American sector by the United States Army military government, polls that show that 70% of people in the American zone supported socialism, 10% supporting communism, 13% supporting uh, capitalism. But maybe even more revealing in 1946, uh, this time poll taken by a journalist association, 70% of people in 1947 supporting the People's Committees and the People's Republic and wanting the name of liberated Korea to be the Korean People's Republic. That tells you a lot. When did Koreans become Korean? That is the question Dr. Henry M, Associate Professor of History at Yonsei University and I started exploring. It wasn't a question that we planned and it was difficult, but by the end of all of this, I think we got somewhere and I got to know Henry more as a person. The start of this conversation is rather academic. We're talking about the creation of nation states, official narratives, Minjok, Shincheho, and people as the subjects of history. So if that's not necessarily your thing, further on, we, be we begin to talk about people, about Kimgu, about Park Chungi, about status and gender in Korean history, post-colonialism, communism, North Korea, memory and violence. We even talk about K-dramas. Henry's favorite is Itaewon class. I'm very thankful uh, for Henry's time, generosity and open-mindedness. And to those of you watching and listening to the Korea Deconstructed podcast, please know that I truly appreciate all of the support. It means a lot to me. I do all of this by myself, which can be difficult. I also make many mistakes, but I'm trying. And it's my goal to share more about Korea to those that want to learn, those that are curious. So do get involved, make your voice heard, be part of the conversation anyway and anyhow that you can would love to hear from you as well i'll leave you with a quote from henry's recent talk a democratic south korea was not given to the people of south korea the people of south korea achieved their democracy after decades of sacrifice and struggle all nation states have their narratives mm -hmm. um... And um, those narratives are based on um, sort of select, um, selective choosing of, let's say, facts. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe some national narratives uh, are sort of um, more closer to myth than, um, than, than others. In South Korea's case, I think, um, and North Korea's case, I think, it's especially so because I think, um, well, first of all, the the Korean War hasn't ended. The, uh, there have been sort of serious moves toward peace um, in the past few decades, but at the same time, um, there is 
again, uh, quite real um, danger of an escalation. And the current government in South Korea is again um, thinking of um, um, designating North Korea as the primary enemy in its sort of uh, for its military. Um, and so for those reasons, I think, uh, because of the unending, unended uh, Korean War, the, the national narrative in South Korea about its creation and so forth, I think is uh, especially sort of fraught uh, for those who maybe take issue with it um, and uh, point out uh, some of the mm, the non non compelling let's say aspects mm -hmm. of that myth mm -hmm. uh, of that story so because there is an existential nature to the south korea and the north korean state they they're still in this uh period of war that 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 didn't end there was the armistice and although there is the periods of engagement and then hostility but nevertheless because there is that existential fight between these two careers because there is that battle for legitimacy are you suggesting that sometimes that certain types of history become more useful and, and and that we can go towards some of these myths or less convincing things based out of necessity rather than truth i think so um on the whole i think so um i mean if we take a look at uh 20th century history, not just in Korea, but in East, East Asia. Mm. I think the argument has been made, for example, that um, um, uh, when the people of Japan, that the people of Japan were constituted as citizens, for example, um, uh, in such a way that uh, war became not just a um, business of the state, but the business of the people. Mm -hmm. I think the argument has been made that, you know, moving from a feudal structure into the modern nation state that is Japan, the people became citizens within a situation where uh, the state eventually came to be involved in a sort of a forever war, let's mm -hmm. say from 1894 to 1945. It is within that kind of context, uh, context of war making, that people became citizens. Mm. I think the same certainly can be uh, said for people of South Korea and people of North Korea. In the case of uh, Korea, Koreans were mo mobilized for war um, starting in the 1930s. Um, with liberation, that did not really end, I think, the argument can be made. With the creation of two separate states, you know, liberation and partition, basically coming on the same day. Mm. And the kind of um, violence that was an integral part of creating two Koreas. And then soon, of course, uh, the Korean War. And then for South Korea, uh, the Korean War 
uh, ending with just an armistice with tension still very high. And then Korea, uh, Koreans, young, um, young men being sent to the war in Vietnam. I think you can say that um, people in South Korea were mobilized for war from the 1930s until certainly um, early 1970s. It's in that kind of a sort of war mobilization, war making, that people were included um, and constituted as citizens of South Korea. Um, and obviously, in that process, the, the creation of a narrative, national narrative for South Korea was essential, played an essential role. Mm. Do you think that's why many of the revered people we see today, rightly revered, but why they were chosen, if we think of Admiral Lee Sun-shin or An Jong-un, or there is this kind of martyrdom or this heroic nature to these heroes? Do you believe, is that kind of why? Because they were mobilized in this uh, necessity for war. I mean, you put it at, at 1930s. I just read um, Lee Jong-sik's book on nationalism in Korea which was written back in 1965. And, and that sort of states the start of Korean nationalism from the Donghak and anti-Japanese, uh, so the, the late 1800s, early 1900s, that's when Koreans began to feel a sense of Koreanness and it was anti-Japanese sentiment. There was another book whose author I forget, but they attributed it to the Indian war and the righteous armies that, that spread up there as the start of Korean nationalism. So because it, it, it comes around war, that creates part of the narrative. The narrative is one that exists in a, in a state of war. And so the narratives have to be constructed to help, in a sense, win that war. So we get heroes and tales of sacrifice and courage. Sure, I think so. Um, I think the, the, I think the sort of slight, um, revision I would make would be that I think probably we need to pay attention to the historical context and the and the period mm. in which those uh, national narratives are uh, come to be art articulated. So in terms of um, national heroes, especially uh, um, national heroes who are sort of military martial uh, figures, um, that begins at the very beginning of the 20th century and the pre-colonial and the colonial period. Mm. So though I think the, the context there is, I mean, there's all kinds of different sort of um, uh, things they're responding to, but among others, one would be the question of, you know, how did Chosun, Korea, come to be in that state. Um, that is to say, about to be colonized. So historians like Shin Chae-ho and others, 1905 and onwards, they're, I think they're writing in a context where much of the, the sort of answer, if you will, to you know, how did we come to be in the state uh, had, to be with, had to do with um, the the deficiency, the sort of very fundamental uh, sort of 
what's wrong with what was wrong with Joseon.、Mm. I think that was a Yangban culture.、Uh, Yangban culture that is,、um, I mean, if we think about、uh, sort of how the people of Joseon Korea were governed, theoretically,、um, it was through culture,、mm. right?、Uh, Rituals, rites, rites in terms of rituals, etc., etc. Yeah, qi. Yeah. And、um, and so, in the context of being about to be colonized, etc.,、um, people like Shin Chae Ho,、uh, reading very broadly,、um, sought to find、uh, sort of a you know a different historical inspiration. And、uh, part of part of I think the stimulus came from you know sort of nineteenth century European writing、uh, that talked about heroes in history,、mm. right? And、um, uh, Shin Chae's answer was to go back and look for sort of military martial kind of heroes, Urchi Mundok, etc., etc. That was uh, sort of again picked up by a number of other writers. In the colonial period, if you sort of、uh, zoom to more sort of recent history to Park Chung Hee and so forth, I think、uh, there are other sort of reasons for why he would want to sort of build up, like whether it's the Harang of Shilla and so、mm-hmm. forth,、uh, precisely because he comes from a military background. But I think he also was quite inspired by the the kind of、mm, Discourse that emerged and sort of built up in the early 20th century, from up up through 1930s, right?、Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the I think、uh, the focus on national heroes, military heroes. The counterpart to that is uh,、um, uh, sort of wanting to. Part ways with a kind of、um, Confucian culture that's now sort of feminized、mm-hmm. um, uh, to uh, sort of establish a more a kind of masculine, a、uh, modern military masculine、uh, sort of aspect. That's a, that was a very long answer to a short part of a small part of your question. I think it makes、uh, a lot of sense. And what I you you mentioned that other countries also have national heroes, and and we play this up, whether it's Nelson or something where I where I'm from. You mentioned Shin Chae Ho there, Henry, and as far as I understand, he was one of the people that、uh, really emphasised this kind of this this minjok, this ethnicity. Because one of the types of Korean nationalism, this Tanil Minjok, this idea that the family is,、uh, or the country is a family. Sorry, there is this this blood that brings them together. In contrast to a civic nationalism or a cultural nationalism, here in in Korea, it's more of an ethnic, and in North Korea, perhaps even more so than it is here in modern South Korea. Is is that narrative also coming around that time? Do you see it with Shin Chae Ho's work? This idea of the 
ethnic nationalism, this idea of the, the Minjok and the Uri, does that come at that point for you or is it later? Is it earlier? Um, it seems the, the word Minjok, yeah. uh, it's a neologism. Um, it, it's a neologism in the sense it's a new compound created in the process of translation. And it was created by a um, Japanese uh, intellectual, I, I can't recall his name, around the 1880s. Mm -hmm. So that word did not exist before. Um, it comes to Korea around um, 1900. I think that's 1900 is the first time you sort of see that word uh, in, in a kind of publication. And um, the meaning doesn't really get settled until probably uh, some 1910s. But in Shin Cheo's case, he did not assume that um, Koreans constituted a homogenous minjuk. He talked about sort of five strands. There is a sort of a main, let's say, trunk mm -hmm. in this sort of uh, minjuk genealogy. But I think one thing to point out is um, the way minjuk in Japanese, minzoku, is um, is used is actually closer to both uh, 19th century, you know, European language use, and also the sort of uh, the original sort of um, origins uh, in Latin. Right? So natio, natio, a, a people, uh, sort of um, who are connected to one another at one by by blood by kinship. And so in the 19th century, if you look at uh, English language publications, the word race and um, nation are changed into, are used interchangeably. So you might refer to the Chinese nation or the Chinese race. And so the problem is actually with uh, English. So in the 20th century, sometimes uh, people you know, often used the uh, word nation where you might think of like the word for country. So let's say international relations. Mm. It's actually interstate, intercountry relations. Um, in the 19th century, and so I guess what I'm saying is the, the minzoku, minjok, mm. is much closer to the 19th century uses of the word nation. And going back to Latin, this idea of um, having some relations, uh, kinship relations related by blood. Uh, so that's true. Uh, it's ethnic nation. Minjok is ethnic nation. But Shin Cheho uh, did not uh, did not talk about a the Korean Minjok as a homogenous Minjok. You don't really get that until about the 1920s. Mm. You know? it's given me a much more sophisticated understanding and also it it's interesting that rather than the idea of minjok being different uh, of being unique it's actually more similar than we might imagine to the the, the english language usage or or the latin usage i I'd, I'd never really considered it that way and that's yes so you can say um the idea of minjok is foreign <laughs> it's not really it's not really it's not really korean if you want to put it that way and it's 
and it's like the, I mean, obviously the emergence of a nation state system and, um, you know, the, the nation as I imagine community as, mm. you know, Ben Anderson put it, um, it's, uh, let's say a modality that actually begins in the Americas, goes to Europe, uh, but then it's also disseminated around the world. Um, it's a powerful model modality. I mean, um, yeah, Korean the Korean nation state has a national narrative, a, nat a unique flag, a unique unique national anthem, a unique national flower, et cetera, et cetera. But all nation states have a flag. Mm. All nation states have a national anthem. I think, and, and I think pretty much all nation states have a national flower, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And so um, the, the shift, to a very dramatic shift from a dynastic state to a nation state, uh, Korea shares that kind of historical uh, affinity. It's part of a similar process. Right? I mean, if you ask... Uh, let's say historians like uh, Eugene Weber, uh, who used, I think, taught at UCLA. When did the French become French? <laughs> he would say around 1880s, right? Around 1880s, the French become French. Mm. A different way to ask that question would be, when did the peasants in the south of France become French? So, you know, national national army, conscript army, um, a good national system of uh, transportation, education, where language, uh, you know, uh, schools are taught by school teachers who will now speak in quote unquote standard French, mm -hmm. that is to say the French that's spoken in Paris, right? And so it's a process of nationalizing Nationalizing the people. Yeah. Uh, so you find the same process in Japan. Right? So if you if we think about if we think about the words too, I think this, um, you know, it, I think it's easier to visual uh, visualize visualize even. So for during the Tokugawa period, you have the various uh, sort of domains. Satsuma, Han, Choshu, whatnot. The people within a particular domain were referred to as Kokumin, Kungmin. Mm -hmm. um, and so the domainal lord, when when he's not you know doing his obligatory six months in Edo, refers to the people of his domain as Kokumin, uh, Kungmin. After the Meiji Ishin, all the people of Japan will be referred to as Kokumin, Kungmin. That word also did not exist in the uh, Korean vocabulary. That word Kungmin was not used. What was Today used? It had, uh, sorry to interrupt. Any idea what they would just in? Hexong, mm. or just simply Min, mm. uh, or Inmin. 
uh, but oftentimes just min, right? Um, the country belonged to the king. It's that's what a dynastic state is. Hmm. Sometimes you know, you know, classroom. It's hard for I think students to imagine what living in a dynastic state might have been. So I, I use a different example. I think uh, Truman, President Truman, was coming back from, is it Potsdam or I, I forget? It might be Potsdam. He stops by uh, England. Um, I guess he's sailing back. He's on a he's on a U.S. battleship. And the king of England comes to greet him. And Truman later writes this down in his uh, memoir. The king of England boards the American battleship. And then he says, welcome to my country. <laughs> and Truman thought, wow, that's really funny. Because, you know, if you go out to Incheon, Incheon Airport, mm -hmm. or I go out to Incheon Airport, well, let's say, and we say, welcome to my country. It's not the same as if a king says, welcome to my country. When, when the king says, welcome to my country, it means the land and the people belong to him. Mm. Right? So if you look at the Joseon, uh, you know, what is the Joseon? It's Jongmyo and Sajik. Jongmyo, the royal ancestral temple. It contains the spirit tablets of the dynastic founder and uh, successive sort of major uh, kings and queens. Hmm. The country belongs to the king. It's his land, it's his people. So, you know, nationalism, nation is um, often sort of seen as something that's uh, kind of totalizing um, non-democratic and yes there certainly is aspect of that but I think uh, what I try to show in the book is uh, the idea it's a dramatic shift Korean history is not a history of successive dynasties and uh, dynastic states History of Korea is the history of the people. Um, and that includes everyone, mm. which is to say um, men and women, old and young, yangban and nobi, or former nobi, are being invited into history as the subjects of history. It is at fundamental a very democratic move it is a it is a uh, act of inclusion mm. the idea of minjok uh, is that you become part of the chuche uh, of history mm. this land belongs to you this land is your land this land is my land kind of thing and this history belongs to you and what you do is a part of this history that's a pretty dramatic um, kind of um, political break, uh, political sort of broadening of horizons 
yeah. for political participation, uh, political rights, claims, etc. So I think when we think about Minjo, that's one aspect of um, that we should probably sort of keep in mind. Mm. It's about inclusion about bringing people into the story of history. Uh, so I'm sure people like Hegel and Fukuyama would like this. It's about recognizing more and more people in society. And so if a king then in this framework is going on, he would say, welcome to our country instead of my country. It includes more and more people in this story. I think is... uh, in Shincheo's case, there was a suggestion that we don't need a king. So the creation of the minjok mm. Uh, actually displaces and can leaves no room for a king. Would it be it's a republic a rep instead? Or it's a republican idea. Mm. In the way that it was introduced, at the time that it was introduced, and by the people who introduced it, it's a republican idea. Mm. And... Well, that's what we have today. We have the Republic of South Korea and people feel part of this story. I think one of the things that I notice in modern South Korea is just how connected to the national narrative here people feel, how whether it's the, the triumphs of Grammys and Oscars and World Cup victories and things like this that really moves people, as well as the tragedies that befall the nation, uh, whether it's an Ito one, but it, it feels like that that republic, that connection, that inclusion, as you said, of men and women and old and young, that worked now. I just mm, want to, can I ask one question, if I sure. may? But it was about when you was talking about the kukmin of various in, in Japan, and you would say that each, I'll, I'll get the words incorrect, so forgive me, but each- Domain. Domain, yeah, I was going to say fiefdom, but each domain would have their own sort of gukmin or the Japanese equivalent. And so yeah. it was going from many different gukmins to one bigger gukmin. They were all in their own various province, domain, or geographical, cultural place, but then it was encompassing them all into one. So it was making the many into one, essentially. Is, is that a way of looking at it? Sure, I think so. Um, I would add a couple of things. So it's... Uh process of uh, you know nationalizing uh, the people of J J uh, Japan uh, um, and um, I think one thing to keep kept in mind is Kokumin uh, at the time that it's uh, uh, at the time that it's uh, in the late 19th century mm. still and uh, up through 1945 is a very conservative, conservative concept. Kokumin, um, in terms of, let's say, subject, I mean, you can have two aspects of that word, right? Mm -hmm. Subject in terms of the sort of active agent, participating, being part of history making, etc. But the other aspect of it is being subjected, being under, uh, that is to say, subject as in terms of, as in the sense of obeying, subject of the emperor. The first aspect is sort of a very minor aspect. The, the emphasis, the, the nuance, is much, much more in terms of the loyal subject, obedient subject, right? Subject to the, of the emperor. 
And so uh, that concept had a very uh, conservative connotation. Um, when you heard, and that's true up through maybe 1990s even, maybe, maybe even 1990s, 2000s. That is to say, um, the alternative to kukmin or kokmin, because in the colonial period, that's that would be the word kokmin, right? mm. uh, to the extent that uh, Koreans would be later, well, it would be hwangmin. Um, Japanese are kokmin, but even so, the alternative, more uh, the word that would be associated with resistance, revolution, of course, is inmin. Right. And so Inmin comes to be associated with the left, uh, especially the Marxist-Leninist left. And so for people like Shin Cheho, anarchists and others, an alternative word would be Minjung. So Minjung is used. Mm. When uh, the people who were drafting the, the first constitution of South Korea in 1948, apparently they... Um, debated and sort of agonized about which word to use. For the most part, they were pretty conservative. But even so, they hesitated about using the word kungmin mm. in, the, in the South Korean constitution. But ultimately, they used the word kungmin. It's not really until like 1990s, 2000s, that the candlelight revolution, et cetera, et cetera, um, um, change the nuance of the word so that today you know you have movies and so forth where the, the article one of the South Korean constitution sovereignty rests with the with the people etc that kumin comes to take on almost a sense of like a very kind of liberal I don't want to say a more kind of um, demo, demo, a word that's really associated with democracy mm. but that was not the case up to like for much of the 20th century, Kungmin was conservative, conservative. So it's fascinating that the word has changed, but people's perception or understanding of the word has changed, whereas Gukmin was the original to be subject or to be obeying the leader. I sometimes have my, my friends tease me as being a, a subject of the British royal family and things like that, said in a mocking or disparaging way. The former one, the the active agent of history, the participatory participatory nature. I perhaps I'm not sure if it's incorrect, but I, I often associate that with more Marxist connotations. People as the drivers of history. It might not be exclusively Marxist, but that's how I understood it. So it's interesting to see that the word has stayed the same, but the perception of it has changed. If I remember correctly during uh, ex-president Moon Jae-in's time and with Cho Guk, there was a there was a desire to change that word uh, in some documents from from Gukmin to, to Inmin. Yeah, I think I think we can assume that uh, the meaning of a word is not going to be stable in any history, in any context. The meaning of a word will change. Yeah. Yeah. And while we're talking about this idea of the the, the creation of narratives and that requires nationalizing which i love as a verb now all of a sudden rather than sort of nation but 
nation hada or nationing as, as these do. And this comes through, as you've said, and you gave the example of France or the institutions through the education, through the military, but also the ideas that are placed into people's heads and uh, using these words and ideologies. You suggested that that might be done undemocratically at a time that it's, it's sort of put there. That's in a sense, relatively modern. Maybe we're looking at a century and a half, something like that, 150 years. But in doing that, in creating that nation, history is then extended as far back as possible. And so you, you have this kind of dichotomy between it being a very modern concept, but yet appealing to, for example, here in Korea, 5,000 years of history. And how do you understand that seeming difference between it being a very modern concept and us understanding that, uh, you know, as, as people that read books, we understand that it's relatively modern and yet the ideas that come with it espouse or champion a much far lengthier and loftier history that stretches way back beyond its origins. Mm -hmm. Sure. So in that, in that sense, I think uh, it's not just a nation state. It's not just a nation or a minjo that does that. I think there are other uh, sort of, let's say, imagined communities that do the same. So for example, the idea of Western civilization. The idea of Western civilization having roots back to classical Greece or even earlier, right? Um, to the you know, to the Orient, etc. That's a claim. Mm. Right? That the glory that was ancient Greece, of course, there are important shifts and so forth, but um, you know, it it's a legacy that comes down to Hegel, Europe, et cetera, et cetera. That's a claim that's made. Um, sure, it's not just a nation state that does that. Um, it's dynastic states uh, in East Asia did that. Mm. Uh, larger sort of um, sort of ideas, uh, you know, Western civilization does the same thing. Mm. Yeah. We, we like to appeal, maybe religions do it as well. In, in China, I'm thinking of the appeals to the Yao and the Shun dynasties and going mm. back as far as possible. Perhaps just, uh, if I may, a couple of questions on this, trying to bring it back towards Korea. Now, this first question might be seen as a little bit, I, I'm not sure if it's controversial, but if, if I can't ask it to somebody like you, I'm not sure who I can. In terms of the uh, the validity of the history, the truthfulness of the history. I, I mean, I grew up learning certain aspects of British history and that monumental history has changed to a rather more critical history over the last couple of decades as there are more explorations into uh, colonialism and empire and slavery. So how history is taught is changing over time. But the gap between what happened and what is taught, between the reality and the narrative, in South Korea, and an understanding as well that no country is ever perfect, in South Korea, is the gap between the, the reality and the narrative any larger than other countries? Is it smaller? Is it just the same as you would expect? Or is it an incorrect question because actually the reality and the narrative are the same thing? I'm not sure if I'm getting this question across, but I'm just mm -hmm. trying to perhaps ask you about the, the valid validity of the history 
that is being taught here while also understanding the context of the the war, the struggles, the 20th century that Korea has experienced? I think certainly across uh, different countries, there is this gap. Mm. Uh, the way you pose the question seemed to sort of elicit a, a kind of um, qu a quantitative response, right? Like, let's say in the United States, the, the gap is this big, or <laughs> in South Korea, the gap is like this big, or maybe even bigger, et cetera. Maybe I would try to answer it in a slightly different way. Um, the current contemporary use of, you know, how those national narratives are deployed by whom, for what purpose. Um, that's probably the more kind of urgent political question. And so if there is a, let's say a myth about um, a national narrative about, let's say the United States, um, how is that uh, myth sort of deployed for whom, against whom, Mm. Um, how how viciously uh, etc the, in the case of South Korea uh, it's part of certainly a, a ongoing uh, sort of conflict, uh, political conflict within South Korea uh, I think in the shorthand you can sort of talk about it in terms of left you know, center left, center right. Mm. Um, and it's often said that I think, you know, the history is much more contentious in East Asia than in other places. Let's say, I'm, I'm not actually, I'm not quite sure about that. But certainly, history is the site of contestation, political contestation. Whether it's in, whether it's uh, Japan, Korea, uh, China, China. I'm not sure about China. I'm not sure about China in the sense that the, how much I don't know how much contestation there might be mm. allowed in 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 the open. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> It's a great line, though. History is the site of political constantation. And you're giving me so many of these great lines, Henry. I've often felt that, that, for example, in Britain, you know, there might be conversations around class in the United States. I'm, I'm not American, but race seems to be a very important topic there. Now, here in, in South Korea, where I've been for quite a long time and where whenever I'm writing, whenever I'm speaking in the media or doing things like that, I'm very conscious of the, the explosive nature of Korean history and how this might be the topic. Not as much whether it might be social issues or North Korea, but Korean history is the one that feels to me like I've really got to be careful on how I tread and how I address these things. And it's more about being empathetic sometimes uh, and I, I'm just speaking honestly here, that it's more about being empathetic regarding Korean history than truthful. And, and I want to be empathetic and I want to, you know, show respect and, and kindness to people that have, you know, welcomed me and shown me much love in, in return. But I guess what I'm trying to ask you here is, do you feel that nature of history is very particularly 
contested, politicized here in, in South Korea, because you mentioned the center left and, and center right, and they will have different versions of whether we look at 1945 or 1948, or even 1919 as, as the start and how we tell those stories. But also there seems to be a, a broader national history in Korea that in South Korea that needs to be adhered to. There's almost a secular religious approach to it that one has to take. Uh, I, I'm not sure how you see the nature or seriousness of history here in modern South Korea, Henry. I see. Um, I'm a historic, uh, historian of modern Korea. Mm. And so, um, I mean, the, right now I, I don't teach graduate students. I only teach undergraduates. But in the departments of, you know, uh, Korean history, Korean history departments in Korea, I think the um, I'm not sure what it's like now, but certainly in the past, the, the students who, let's say at the graduate level, who become, who enter graduate programs, et cetera, they're either interested in ancient history or maybe modern history. And then, there, of course, there would be some people in between. Mm. But... Um, very smart people get attracted, you know, um, sort of drawn to like really ancient history, uh, but also and then uh, modern history. The debates over ancient Korean history, uh, just speaking personally, that I just try to avoid because first of all, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know that field. Uh, I know there's tons of like scholarship and it's very contentious mm. i don't know uh you know who's arguing what for what reason that historiography for me that is i just know kind of, you know at a vague level um but in terms of modern history you know, I, I think you know like you also have to sort of think about this uh in a historical sense the the democracy movement that emerges as a, a real kind of dissident movement, especially mm -hmm. from 1970s, 80s onwards, the, the, the study, the critical study of modern Korean history was you know, just really essential to the formation and uh, you know, sustaining on the, the, the sort of movement. And the idea that, the idea of like, where and how did Korean history go wrong, right? Um, and so history matters because critical rethinking of history and challenging that sort of national, national narrative, et cetera, was a essential part of that democracy movement mm. that challenged the kind of ruling bloc. Um, and that kind of sort of political configuration sort of continues to, to today, whether at the level of party politics or I think 
in terms of sort of more uh, civic organizations, uh, et cetera. So. In the 1970s and 1980s, as you point to, perhaps this is the the arrival of the Minjung movement, uh, and you described it as a dissident movement. Um, I know, for example, uh, in Nam He's work, there's many others, but this making of the Minjung, this challenging the accepted narratives, doing critical history, in that sense, in the way you describe it, and the way perhaps other people like in Nam He, this kind of awakening of realizing yourself as a subject in the more liberal sense that we described earlier. I get the sense, Henry, that history then becomes almost an attitude. History is not about, uh, this might go back to E.H. Carr and things like that, but history is not so much about always about facts, but it's about how you approach it. It's about people realizing their place in something. So whether it's from the kokomin to the larger gukmin and, and, and these changes, but it almost becomes and this is ben, Ad ben Anderson's idea of perhaps, but it almost becomes awakening in people's minds about how they exist, where they are in time, who they are subject to or not subject to. And so when you look at South Korea over the last 100 or 20 years, of course, you can see the various material developments and changes and institutional changes, political changes, but just as important perhaps, if not more so, is the changes in people's heads, which become harder to kind of <laughs> open up and look and check and do archaeology on. Uh, history is the awakening or the changes in people's heads and the minjung, perhaps. Is that one way of approaching it? These narratives, um, ways of narrating uh, and interpreting um, Korean history, they have to have... Um, an empirical basis. Yeah. They have to be at some level based on um, archival work. And so I don't, um, I don't think you can say the kind of dissident movement uh, that emerged um, was based on sort of recovery um, recovery of uh, um, and re-examination of the archive. What was left out? What was silenced? Um, and so these narratives are not, well, maybe not some of these narratives. Mm -hmm. uh, I say the it's not divorced from uh, archival sources, so that's one thing. But at a different level, I think it, I agree with you. There is an there is an affective attachment to this um, to these narratives, um, and that's probably true not just in Korea but uh, certainly throughout East Asia. Um, that kind of affective attachment to uh, historical narratives um, is probably true for most sort of social movements, don't you think? I do. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, not only that effective emotional attachment, but also I, what I found with social movements, and this might not apply here, but they often require martyrs, <laughs> whether it's uh, a George Floyd, a John Tayil, uh, um, the, uh, the 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 two gentlemen uh, who Ihanol. From the democratic movement, but I find there's a, an emotional attachment, a figurehead, often a, an act of sacrifice, and, and and these go a long way to pushing things. And I've I've always questioned, could we not get there without the death and sacrifice? <laughs> could we not? But perhaps that doesn't that doesn't always work that way. In mm. in, in in terms of history, could I ask you about in terms of Korean history? Obviously, your own work, but do you have any? This is going sort of a little bit uh, on a different tangent. I find myself like a student all of a sudden again, which I love writing down lines you're saying and finding myself getting further away from answers in a beautiful way. Um, do you have any recommendations on particular authors or books, or in terms of Korean history, what we should be reading? Because in one sense, there's a lot out there. In one sense, there's a not. There's not a lot. Uh, currently, I try to introduce my students to Theodore Jinyu's book, uh, The Careers, because it's a modern one, and it, it looks at both careers, and it, it introduces things through lovely stories and people, and it addresses more contemporary issues, as well as being, and he's a good scholar, is grounded in things, but there's also, you know, Honik Guan or Bruce Cummings, or where could or should people be reading interesting Korean history in any language, Henry? There is a, there's a PhD dissertation for the pre-modern period. Hmm. There's a PhD dissertation by Park Hyun-suk. She now teaches at UCLA. Um, I thought that was uh, just a wonderful, uh, wonderful dissertation. And I, you know, assign parts of it in, you know, in undergraduate courses. It is about Quan um, Ki, uh, government courtesan. Government courtesan, um, from that system, you know, uh, goes from the early Joseon all the way through the, the end of Joseon. Um, and so, this dissertation gives, I think, a really, really good look at how status, gender, patriarchy sort of works in Joseon. Kwan Ki, um, not technically a slave, but Pretty much a slave mm-hmm. that belongs to, um, let's say, uh, local local government uh, sort of office. Um, so she does not belong to a particular person. She belongs to that office. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
at a county level, let's say, for example, you have you know county magistrate, etc. And there might be different occasions where you know you have state rituals uh, that need to be performed, or or sometimes uh, guests, male guests, elite male guests who come to be um, that need to be sort of entertained. She does both. Um, and so what Park Hyun-suk points out is also at the state level, at the central level. On the one hand, in this dynastic state where state rituals are so essential to the, 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 the ideology of governing, governing people, right? Where the king is constituted as king, the, the, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. The person who performs uh, at these rituals are like lowest of the low. In the sense that, for example, let's say at a county level, some yangban, uh, for whatever reason, is visiting and he's he's from a very prestigious yangban lineage, capital-based yangban, but whatever. Uh, she would perform. And then um, she would have to sleep with him that night, does not have a choice. Uh, she performs these state rituals and um, serves sexually to men. This happens also at the at the capital level. You have these emissaries, let's say, visiting from China or something. After the rituals or the dancing, etc., she will be there to serve that person. Um, The, the social system uh, in Joseon is one where mm, eliteness for women mm. is based on um, seclusion, right? Um, the, the person of the so sort of inner chambers. Anbang. Anbang. Right, her eliteness is um, predicated on sort of not being seen, etc. Whereas this Kwangi um, is in, you know, meeting in this, let's say, these very public state rituals kind of thing, uh, and meeting and having relations with many men. Uh, so in that sense, she's. Um, anyway, uh, I think in terms of getting a sense for how things kind of worked mm. uh, in Joseon, uh, Park Hyun-suk's dissertation looks at this institution um, and uh, sort of that's, you know, at the periphery, if you want to say it. But it, it shows precisely because it focuses on Gwangi. Yeah, I, I think it's a, 
marvelous dissertation, marvelous work, especially for students today, mm. to show like how different <laughs> Korean society uh, was. The distance between the, the pre-modern uh, and the modern. So that's one writing. Also, I think, you know, um, for students today, the things like the Korean War and so forth, that's like a million, a million years in the past. Mm. All right. Um, Before we go to a different topic, yeah, can yeah, I just start yeah, push sure. back on this Kwangi, and because there's a couple of things here. The the first one is that this this Kwangi, it, it's a really all-encompassing thing that they have to perform the state rituals so they're sort of embodying the state the highest of ceremony the yeah and they're performing those and then at the same time they have to at the night time you describe provide the sexual favors and then they have to perform the most basest of things and it, it, it's fascinating to see that the the highest and the lowest would be encapsulated in in one person having to perform that and then there was something else you said which I don't think I'd ever really considered before, which is the elite status of women being manifest through their exclusion. So there's the anbang, there's the, the interior room in which they would stay. There's the tangot, which is different from the hanbok, but it would be uh, a type of clothing that covered them more from head to toe. You would have that separation, that bubu yubiol in Confucianism. And sometimes I I would look at these aspects and I would try to convey some of these aspects to, to, to students in Korean history classes. And they would be all, you know, oh, wow, that's terrible. But it was actually seen as a sign of eliteness at the time that if you were in the anbang, if you did have the tangod, if you were secluded and not seen, rather than as oppression, or it might still be, but I'm trying to put myself in that time that it was seen as rather, no, this is to be elite. And if people can see you, that's actually a sign of lower class and lower status. I, I'm not, this is the first time I'm, I'm going through that mental process of trying to think through those terms. D does that make sense to you, Henry? D is... Sure. Uh, I think, you know, mm -hmm. The relationship between gender and status and so forth, uh, not just in Korea, but in other places, I mean, uh, you have pretty dramatic shifts over time. Um, I don't have a lot of background, let's say, in American history and so forth, but um, I mean, if you have um, laws on the books, for example, 19th century, I forget when it when they were finally repealed, but in certain areas, mm. that women by law are not worry, are not allowed to wear trousers. They must wear a skirt, right? Um, also the idea that, you know, I mean, you know, women are not, women are not, um, I mean, aside from not being allowed to vote, uh, not allowed to sign contracts. They're not allowed to sign contracts because contracts are signed. It's an agreement. Um, it's a contract between two independent sovereign people. 
So obviously a slave cannot sign a contract. Mm. And a woman cannot sign a contract because she's not an independent person. She's dependent on her husband, uh, etc. Um, so it hasn't been that long, well, over a century now, but where women can enter into contracts and so forth. In terms of gender in Korea, it's, it's um, I think one thing I would say to students is uh, the kind of gender relations and so forth that you find in late, late Joseon, it's, it wasn't always that way. Mm. You know, prior to, prior to the 17th century, daughters inherited, well, we're talking about elite uh, here, daughters inherited equally with sons, which means elite women had um, economic power. Um, upon marriage, the husband usually went to live in the woman's home, which meant the children grew up um, being much more sort of closer and uh, identifying with um, the mother's side of the family. Mm. And you see actually this continuing quite, uh, quite frequently in the, in the modern period. Because until about the 17th century and past, like, you know, thousand years, that basically was the pattern. Um, if you look at Chokpo genealogies, the children are recorded in the order of birth. There's a dramatic transition after the 17th century. Um, People will say, well, this the shift begins, you know, actually a little bit be before the 17th century, but I'm kind of thinking that I'm thinking the Injin Waran, the Toyotomi Hideyoshi invasions, uh, probably had a great to deal to do with it because basically the the dynastic state had to sort of had to be reconstructed, mm. right? Like the nobi in the capital had burned the slave registers. Nobi could be freed if um, have free status if they had, you know, fought and had some success against the Japanese uh, armies, etc. Imagine like trying to reestablish that kind of yangban status system when the king had run away. Mm. So I think oftentimes, often many times, um trying to reestablish uh, political order uh, was done through women's bodies. That is to say, it's after the 17th century, you know, after Injin Wera and so forth, that you, you find really just real emphasis on chast chastity, uh, prohibition against remarriage. Before the 17th century, you know, you get divorced, you know, you know divorce and you re remarry. You don't have a son. Why do you need a son? You don't. You don't feel, you know, pressure to adopt. Adopt mm -hmm. a son. Uh, after the 17th century, it's not like that. Emphasis on chastity, the dynastic state, recognizing like sort of chaste women. I mean, not not you know, widows. Like you're married and you're. 20 years old and your husband is 17 years old, but he dies. You're 20 years old and you're going to be now a widow for life. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be very difficult to live in her husband's home for the rest of her life. 
you know, just eating the food, eating their food. So you you have um, martyrdom in that, in that sense, where the state would recognize this virtuous woman who followed her husband to death, you know, uh, kind of thing. This, again, also has to be looked at, I think, historically, right? So the, the figure of the woman uh, after the 17th century, it was not always like that. And certainly you have dramatic changes in the starting in the 20th century. So mm. about three centuries. Understanding history sort of allows us to realize that maybe where things are definitely not where they should be today in South Korea. When you realize where they once were, perhaps it gives you a, a better context to see maybe things are improving or maybe 300 years ago, they might've been different. Earlier we said how modern nationalism is, is relatively new, but projects itself into the past. And what I get from this this recent one where you talk about Park Hyun-suk's PhD dissertation and, uh, and the rights of women during the Joseon period is that we sort of see this oppression of women and this patriarchal nature as being something that's very Confucian and, and spreads back a long time. But conversely, it has, if not, modern origins, but relatively more recent than we might imagine. You dated it to the Imjin War, the burning of records, the king runs away, the reestablishment of uh, a political order. I understood it, and so this might be a, a time for me to correct my own narrative that I've sometimes used, in that <clears throat> I believe it was when the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the Manchurians took over China. And the, <clears throat> excuse me, and the political elite, the Yangban in, in Korea saw that as the barbarians having taken China. Uh, and therefore they were the last bastions of the Confucian order. And so being the last bastions of the Confucian order with you know, China having fallen to these outside uh, forces that they would then become more fundamental. They would become these Neo-Confucians and they would apply the, the principles even more rigidly to protect it. And that's where women were removed from the, the, the lineage and, and that. So, but you, you, you believe more to the Indian war, which would predate that. I think that uh, sort of regional international context is certainly important. And mm. so what I'm pointing to, I guess, is also the, the situation uh, within Joseon, where right. the dynastic state and the, the young Bang class uh, has to work really hard to establish uh, this sort of status system. Mm. There's, I, I, I now want to go into conversations about, because uh, you mentioned Nobby a few times, and so for, for listeners, that's kind of slavery. Um, that, that might be a whole other conversation for another time because that doesn't come up as much as possible. One last question, I think, Henry, on, on this history and narratives, because I want to talk about North Korea and your recent work there. Um, and this is a rather perhaps a trivial question, so forgive me for asking it. Do you watch any saguks or dramas? Have you seen any that get it right? The big one at the moment is the one with uh, Kim Hesu. 
uh, under the Queen's umbrella. And there's a lot of, of talk about them because they, you know, they enter, they are part of the narrative, I think. When people now talk about Gwangju, many people, rightly or wrongly, might be thinking about Tax Yun Jonsa and, uh, and, and, and the recent movie with um, Song Kang-ho. Do you watch any of these dramas? Do you like them? Do you think they're just, no, I'm an academic. I don't watch Sargooks David or some have appealed to you or not. How do you get on with these Korean dramas, Henry? I watch, um, I watch Korean dramas. I probably <laughs> watch too many uh, Korean dramas. I've, I've seen mm. all of Shuru, the, okay. Under the Queen's Umbrella. Um, I mean, in the past, how would you? I don't know how you would date it, but past ten years or so, the the quality and sophistication of these Korean dramas have just, um, you know, been amazing. Mm. Um, the storytelling, the camera work, the the acting yeah it's hard to resist do you have a favorite or is there one that has stuck out you you watched it and you found yourself engrossed or sure i mean um shuruk uh, too many let's see mm. uh i liked itaewon class mm -hmm. so very uh, not much to do with I was, I was going to say not, not much to do with Korean history, but that's okay. Uh, maybe, maybe there is there, you know what, at some level, I would bet that even contemporary soap drop, uh, uh, TV dramas have their, you know, contemporary Korean history. It sort of res resonates mm -hmm. and sort of draws on refers to, I think, contemporary uh, Korean history. So you tell one class at one level that would have to be, I guess, um, Chebor, and then um, you know, fighting against the Chebor kind of thing. Mm. Have you seen you tell one class? Yeah, I, I have. I must confess, I didn't finish it. I watched. You didn't finish it. Oh it goodness. was becoming a little bit Maktang drama. It was becoming a little bit. All of a sudden, he has a billion won in his or all this money and but i really like the beginning of it you like the beginning First, I, I didn't like the beginning right but it, it got better over uh i think yeah <laughs> no my, my 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 kids can still sing the uh seron shijak song and it was big it was big in our household um I, because of my hallyu lectures i start most korean dramas i don't always finish them i i, I finished um Uyongu. I, I like that one. I liked um, Nai Hebang Ilji, uh, My Liberation Notes. I thought that was fantastic. It yeah. really seemed to resonate with a lot of people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s around me. <laughs> Maybe not with the youngsters as much, but people of a certain generation, I think that really hit home this kind of quiet. There was lots of shots of people traveling, doing nothing, saying nothing, and just drinking and contemplating and... I love that one. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, it, from dramas, if I can, Henry, to to your recent talk for the Royal Asiatic Society, as, as well as your other work, um, there you're looking at, you said that the Korean War feels a million miles away to modern people, and I, I agree with you in some sense, but there 
you've been looking at sort of the relationship between the two Koreas and the division of the peninsula. And today we do have the two Koreas and they have different names for their people and, and for their nations and for each other, I guess. Um, this is Namjoson to the people in Pyongyang. How should we understand the division of the peninsula that was uh, you know, produced in America by Bone Steel and Rusk. Was it necessary? Was it great power politics? Was it because in Korea themselves it was so divided they they needed to have two Koreas? Or is it the greatest tragedy of the 20th century or something that's given South Korea the opportunity for the marvelous dramas that it produces today? Uh, how should we be understanding or in, interpreting the division of the peninsula, Henry? I think it's uh, really unfortunate, and that word is uh, uh, an understatement. It doesn't do it justice. I think it's uh, it's a real. It was really unfortunate that the United States proposed to the Soviet Union that a line be drawn across the 38th parallel, because that sets off a dynamic that uh, leads. Perhaps not inevitably, but it 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 drove in that direction of creating two Koreas. Um, in the South Korean history textbooks, and this goes back to the first question, uh, which I did not uh, sort of uh, answer very well because it, it's a very important question and it's a big question, and um, um, but about national narratives, national myths, etc. One of the, I think one of the things that's sort of stated in um, the South Korean history textbooks is that trusteeship is responsible for Korea's uh, division. Mm. Uh, and we talked before about, you know, so the gap, the distance between certain sort of historical truths and these narr narratives. There is uh, an element of sort of his historical truth there, but um, on the whole, uh, it distorts more than it illuminates. It distorts because, well, couple, at a couple of levels, a trusteeship, um, an agreement between the United States and the Soviet Union to establish a trusteeship over Korea. Um, I mean, at a at, at at a emotional level for probably just Koreans across the political spectrum, you know, it's uh, it's something that's uh, difficult to accept, obviously, because the Japanese Empire has surrendered. Uh, the Japanese Empire has been defeated. Uh, Korea is to, should be liberated. And um, Koreans had this history, uh, a, a national history, if you will, mm. that goes back over a thousand years, at least. And so this idea that now the Soviet Union and the United States will, you know, uh, establish a, a state for the Koreans, of course, with the participation of Koreans. I mean, you, you can, it's, 
hard to accept. On the other hand, um, uh, I think for certain politicians, they knew exactly what they were doing when they um, launched campaigns against trusteeship, especially for people like politicians like Sung Man Rhee, who as early as December 1946 was advocating for the creation of a separate state south of the 38th parallel, mm -hmm. that undermining the trusteeship agreement would be would mean that the United States would create a state in the south and the Soviet Union would create a state in the north. Um, and so a very, you know, the, the idea that trusteeship led to the creation of uh, two Koreas, there's an element of truth, but it distorts more than it um, it illuminates. Because when the trusteeship agreement is flushed down the toilet, then the United States is going to create a state in the South and the Soviet Union will create a state in the North. It's going to create two, two states. The, the 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 situation, of course, is that the people who created South Korea were the ones who were against the trusteeship uh, agreement, um, and so uh, sort of having a, a deeper, nuanced uh, sort of you know. Uh, Understanding of that trusteeship uh, is certainly something that you know should be in the history books, but it's it's not. But the other thing, of course, is trusteeship did not need to be trusteeship did not need to mean that a line is drawn across the thirty eighth parallel. You could have a joint occupation, uh, etc. So, uh, in terms of responsibility, historical responsibility, certainly um, a great deal of that responsibility is on the shoulders of the United States and the Soviet Union. But also, yeah, I think you have to take one more step where, you know, whether it's uh, theologians like Hamza Khan or historians like Kang Mangir will say, even if a line was drawn. Even if you have divided occupation, um, Koreans had to have found a way to sort of overcome that kind of situation. And you also have to have a reckoning of, um, and a recognition of who, who among Koreans are responsible for the creation of these separate states. There, there are some historians who will say the creation of two Koreas did not necessarily have to lead to a Korean War. I, I, for me, that is not as compelling because once you have two Koreas, two Koreas that claim sovereignty over all of Korea with their own armies, et cetera, et cetera, and a situation where nobody accepts a line across the 38th mm -hmm. parallel, um, 
yeah, I, the possibility of war uh, is, you know, almost at that level of inevitability, I think. And it's not just the violence between the two Koreas, I think, as as you've pointed out and many other historians, it's the violence within the two Koreas against people that don't belong, whether it's in Jeju or uh, purges in the north as well. You talk about the American responsibility of drawing that line and they didn't have to, that they could have said this will be a, you know, a joint trusteeship between the Soviet Union and a joint occupation, a, a joint occupation. Sorry. Mm. And, and it's also interesting to me why the Soviet Union or why Joseph Stalin accepted that line at the time, you know, why they, why they agreed to it, why they agreed to maybe Catherine Wethersby or other research will in the archives will shed more illumination on that, but why they both agreed to that still kind of fascinates me in your work. You asked this question, well, rather than America or the Soviet Union, what do the Koreans want? You mentioned, amongst other people, Lee Sung-man. You will also have Kim Won-bong, Kim Gu, Mu Jong, various people across this political spectrum, whether they're on the, on, on the right, like Kim Gu, on the, on the other side, like Mu Jong, whether they're nationalists or... Um, and, and, and so was it the case, and this is not to attribute blame to the Korean people themselves, but there wasn't a unified Korean body that had a, a leader that they could look to. And that would never be perfect in any way. You know, not, not everybody, for example, supported um, Ataturk or Gandhi, but that there was a great deal of factionalism and a great deal of separation. And the reason I ask this, and I, I don't mean to make this offensive, but one of my professors once told me a joke that if you put two Korean people on an island, they would come up with three political parties, my party, your party, and our party. And it was that uh, lack of unity. And it, it, it shows something of the dynamism and, and the great, you know, all of these different ideas that were there. But because there were so many ideas, there wasn't one. The question I'm trying to hear is, is it because the, there wasn't enough unity? There was too much diversity amongst Korean thought on the peninsula at the time. I think if you look at the history of China, if you look at the history of Japan, mm. you look at the history of Korea, you look at the history of United States and contemporary American uh, politics or the UK, uh, do you find unity, David? <laughs> <laughs> I see Brexit and tragedy, Henry. <laughs> I take uh, your point. Political contestation uh, and big sort of and divergent kind of political visions. That, that was the, and is the mark of the 20th century, right? Mm. My goodness. I mean, I could sort of focus on, um, I could focus on, let's say, certain political figures. But I think it might be, it might be more, um, might help to sort of visualize things better. Mm. If we think about perhaps in terms of like um, those big political narratives. Uh, that are clashing. Um, the biggest, and I would say the 
most powerful sort of political narrative at the time, I would say, within Korea. Mm. A political narrative that sort of shapes the political orientation, political terrain of Korea in 1945 is colonialism and anti-colonialism. You know, what should liberation mean? Uh, who are the forces that are the real sort of post-colonial, um, offering a post-colonial vision? Right? Who really is, um, what is the direction and the vision for creating a um, post-colonial, liberated, independent Korea? Sovereign. So I think that is understandably so at the time, the, the dominant sort of um, the political context, the political terrain on which people are making sort of various claims, et cetera, and competing with one another. Colonialism and anti-colonialism. I think with the intervention and occupation and so forth of the United States, what the United States helps to establish is a different kind of narrative, a different kind of a different kind of uh, way of seeing the world, uh, uh, um, a different paradigm, political paradigm. And it's um, pressing on the United States to be able to displace that colonial, anti-colonial paradigm with a, with a different paradigm. And that is the paradigm of totalitarianism versus freedom. Because with this other sort of political terrain, discourse of colonialism and anti-colonialism, and to create a really liberated, independent, post-colonial Korea, the left is obviously in a much more advantageous position. And you see this in polls taken in the American sector by the United States Army military government, polls that show that 70% of people in the American zone supported socialism, 10% supporting communism, 13% supporting uh, capitalism, but maybe even more revealing in 1946, uh, this time poll taken by a journalist association, 70% of people in 1947 supporting the People's Committees and the People's Republic and wanting the name of liberated Korea to be the Korean People's Republic, mm. that tells you a lot. And so to displace that dominant kind of political paradigm of colonialism and anti-colonialism with totalitarianism versus freedom required a great deal of um, violence. And that's where you see, I think, um, April 3rd mm. uh, uprising in Jeju and having to suppress it uprisings in Yosu, Suncheon, et cetera, et cetera. 
And by the way, the current administration uh, in South Korea is going to is trying to or about to remove mention of the April third uprising from the South Korean history textbooks. No, they they're still playing that game. I thought they would have moved past that. Yeah. Nope. No. Lots of things are returning. Is when you mentioned these these statistics that show the level of support for various types of socialism, communism in in the southern part of Korea, and as you know, it was in vogue at the time. You'd have had 1917 in in Russia and various other parts. Obviously, it was very strong in in China, and I I don't think. No, I, I would imagine. I, I'm pretty sure that it wasn't seen as. It would have been seen in different terms back then. We wouldn't have seen how socialism and communism has played out over the last fifty years. Um, has that tendency? Has that affiliation? Has that support for socialism in the south? Has that kind of been wiped away because it went from that to a, a society where? You know, reading E.H. Carr would have you labelled a balgengi and, and kicked out or something like that. That's been a great shift there, hasn't it? So I'm asking you: Has that support, has that generally been sort of wiped out of the narrative that Korea was always this strong and we don't condone those conversations? Seems to have been. No, uh, nothing is. Uh, nothing is fixed. Right. Nothing is fixed. Um, I sound like a Buddhist when I say this, but everything is in flux. Nothing is going to remain the same. Mm. Everything changes. Not just in Korea. In Korea, things seems to happen a lot quicker. But in the 1980s, for example, there was a significant uh, sort of effort to reestablish kind of a link uh, to that kind of revolutionary past. And then in 1990s, um, that goes away. Um, and I think it might be useful to maybe think about it this way. And here I'm thinking of a very different context. I'm thinking about uh, Wang Hui uh, in China, who, let's say from a um, more kind of progressive, quote-unquote, position. Mm. How to think about China's revolutionary past, right? And so, how to think about China's revolutionary past, and here I think we can make the sort of a similar move for Korean history, in my case, let's say, speaking personally. I mean, there's at least two ways of sort of going about, let's say, for in the China case. You say, um, and both, both uh, sort of positions uh, basically uh, will say goodbye revolution, right? So one, one position would be a more kind of neoliberal free market capitalism kind of thing saying goodbye revolution. Thank God it's over. Um, you know, may it never come back again. We have to be on guard that it might come back again. Mm. Um, goodbye, revolution. 
don't come back. Wang Hui would be goodbye revolution, but it's a little bit different here. Goodbye revolution in the sense that the revolutions of the 20th century cannot come back, should not come back. Revolutions of the 20th century cannot be repeated, should not be repeated, but. So there is the goodbye revolution, but there is also a but. The kind of really important uh, issues that these revolutions were trying to sort of solve and provide an answer to persists today. And so, yes, goodbye revolution. It's not, it cannot be brought back. It should not be brought back. But there's a lot to learn uh, from those revolutions. Mm. It is not something that should just uh, sort of be sealed away. Because sealing away the past really narrows the horizon of political possibilities. What you think is possible and what you think is impossible. So um, the kind of cordon that's drawn across, around, seal off, sealing off a kind of Korea's revolutionary past, I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think it's good. Hmm. This is not to say that those revolutions of the Korean revolutions of the 20th century, century can be brought back or should be brought back. No. But sealing them off, um, that gives a distorted um, understanding of the past and it limits what you think uh, the horizon of what's possible. Yeah, it limits the ideational horizon of that which we might be able to achieve. And I understand perhaps why I have some sympathy for, for those who try to limit horizons. What I mean is, even though I don't support the limiting uh, of horizons myself, I understand why certain people might want to do it, why they might want to <laughs> not teach Machiavelli if they believe in good values or something like that. Let, let's not have these ideas go out there if they've perhaps suffered at the hands of, of communists. And I, I want to come to that public suffering and that was inflicted upon the Korean people, that they might be motivated to, you know, not teach American values in the North or not teach communist values in the South because of the great suffering that they have brought. And although I wouldn't support the limiting of horizons, I can understand, I think, why some people would go down that way. And maybe it needs academics or people with perspectives like yourself, Henry, that are open to those horizons because maybe not everyone would think that way. Well, I guess um, I respond at sort of two different levels. One would be uh, the past is not something that gets uh, transmitted automatically. The vast majority of texts, thinkers, and so forth are not transmitted. Uh, 
if and when that happens, it's also a kind of reinterpretation. So you mentioned Machiavelli, mm -hmm. or maybe it's Marx. Um, in what context, in what historical situation do certain, let's say, intellectuals or some publications bring back a certain thinker, right? Um, so that's one consideration. But like, if, whether it's Marx or whether it's uh, Hamza Khan or Kim Gu or something, uh, certainly also a reinterpretation in the sense that it's going to be made to speak to the present, mm. right? And so um, transmission is also, uh, you know, an act of interpretation. That's one thing. Um, the other thing, of course, is, um, and it's related to this, is uh, those who would seal off certain parts of the past, there is actual, real political and class interests involved. Right. It threatens who they are, the kind of uh, narratives that their political party uh, sort of mobilizes to win elections, uh, etc. I wonder if we can ever, there's a, there's a speech by Tommy Douglas, a Canadian politician. It's an allegory called Mouseland. And at the end of that, he says, but I tell you, my friends, that you can lock up a man or a mouse, but you can, you can never lock up an idea. The suggestion being that we can try to seal off the past. We can try to do that. And I'm not sure if he's correct or not, because I think some countries do do a very good job of locking up the past and, and pushing it away. We have this perhaps romantic notion that the truth will always uh, win out, that it will always come to the surface. But I'm not sure about that. I, I love this line, goodbye revolution, <laughs> goodbye revolution and don't come back. It sounds like an alternate Beatles song or something like that. It sounds like John Lennon rail, railing against the gang of four. What we do know that has happened, Henry, is that during the Korean War and uh, the various incidents, I mean, you mentioned about taking Jeju out of the history books. And... Can we start there, please? I, I, this, I'm jumping around with different thoughts in my head, but you mentioned the current administration talking about Jeju out of the history books. What would be the motivation for that? So I, I just want to be try to be clear with it. Obviously, you're not in that administration. You're not the one making the decision. But I just want to unpack that a little bit, if you may, because it's a, it's a highly contentious political issue. But I just want to try to understand why that would be happening. Why in the 21st century, there would be a desire to cover up rather than uncover. Providing uh, to some, even to uh, a limited degree, um, a kind of justification and recognition or the uprising in Jeju in 1948, the April 3rd uprising, mm. D 
destabilizes and uh, sort of um, and and uh, destabilizes um, and establishes a certain basis or broadens the basis for the the argument that the there's something not quite right. There's something quite wrong about how South Korea was established and whether South Korea uh, should have been established. Mm. So if we go back a little bit further to, let's say, the early 2000s, when you have the, the so-called the new right uh, really kind of entering the political discourse, new right historians, Mm. Um, you would take figure of let's say somebody like Kim Gu Kim Gu opposed trusteeship but in um, you know when it in 1948 when it became clear that the UN uh, temporary commission on Korea was you know could and was about to um, organize elections just in the south and thus create two Koreas, basically. Um, he boycotted the elections. And not just Kim Gu, but Kim Gyu-shik and others. Now, Kim Gu, as you said, mentioned, is um, seen as a sort of a hero, national hero. Uh, but from the point of the new right, the argument would be, wait, we shouldn't we shouldn't valorize Kim Gu like this because here's somebody who opposed the establishment of South Korea in 1948. Mm. And so how can you have someone <laughs> celebrate someone in the South Korean history textbook mm. that opposed the establishment of South Korea? Kind of thing. I think these are these are related. Because if you start to question the, you know, uh, the legit the justification for creating South Korea in the first place, then you begin to um, sort of question and undermine the entire narrative uh, on which the historical narrative on which the conservative right-wing forces in South Korea sort of base their raison d'etre. Mm. There's a, a Russian proverb that says the past is unpredictable. And what we see in Korea is that it, history keeps changing in South Korea. So sometimes I, one of the reasons I, I, I love staying and working in South Korea, not just the people, but I, I believe the Korean story hasn't yet been fully written. I don't know the trajectory of Korea. Whereas perhaps some other countries, I feel like it's, you know, that that's done. It's settled here. I believe not only the future is as yet unknown, but the past is as yet unknown in Korea. The history keeps changing. I recently saw a photo of Lee Seung-man and Kim Gu together. Many people were discussing who looked more uncomfortable because we normally, I normally associate Kim Gu as being dressed in a hanbok. And I, I want to ask you about Kim Gu because we've spoken a lot about, uh, events and we've spoken a lot about theories we've spoken a lot about nations 
we haven't really spoken about people and, and maybe listeners might hear these different names but not be able to draw anything from them. I, It's in Kim Gu's autobiography, but also in other books, this, this tale of him meeting a Japanese guy with a sword and so Kim Gu kills him. And this might be apocryphal, but I believe it's kind of spread. And even my young niece knows about this story. Um, I, I've heard stories that Kim Gu was, you know, he was of lower class and the Donghak uh, kind of religious peasant uprising movement accepted him despite his lower class, that he was a very passionate man, but perhaps not very diplomatically suave and, and couldn't handle things. That's a very limited understanding I have of Kim Gu. I, is there anything that would help us understand him better, Henry? Do you have any sense of who this man was or, or what role he has played in Korean history? Um, I think uh, here too, um, I would I would answer that question sort of in terms of um, how and why and when narratives about Kim Gu mm. um, were established and shift and so forth. Um, to be quite frank, I mean, 1970s, 1980s, especially the historians of modern Korea, mm. almost by definition, historians of modern Korea in South Korea, almost by definition, of course, there are exceptions, tended to be center-left or maybe even uh, left. Is there a reason for that? that they... I wouldn't have assumed that would be the case. That's, that's the only reason I asked. I... Does history normally draw? I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've sort of gathered the kind of, I mean, one is because, you know, the type of state you had uh, in 1970, South Korea, mm. it's Yushin. Um, the Yushin constitution uh, makes it such that it would be a, some sort of, you know, um, council or um, convention that would, you know, pick the president. And Park Jung-hee names, what, something like 70% of the people in the convention or something. And he himself leads the convention. Mm. The Yushin constitution gave Park Jung-hee the power to appoint all judges, from local judges to the judges on the constitutional court. Gave him the power to you know, um, name one-third of the people in the National Assembly. He ruled through emergency decree. Emergency decree one and two makes it illegal to criticize the Yushin Constitution. Emergency decree, I forget now, was it eight, nine? Makes it illegal to criticize the government. Mm. We're talking about that kind of, yeah. um, we're talking about that kind of dictatorship. Um, and Park Jung-hee had been an officer in the Japanese Imperial Army and a, um, and South Korea's political economy 
the ruling bloc were constituted, or basically constituted by those who um, had had very close relationship with the Japanese colonial state. And so um, it's in that context that a nationalist left emerged. Mm. Mm. The situation is kind of more com complex, but I mean, it's one reason why you have a left like re-emerging, but this left is also anti-colonial nationalist. Yeah. In that context, in that context, the left um, actually helped the progressive historians, actually helped to build up Kim Gu. They built up Kim Gu because he's right wing, but in 1948, he opposed the creation of South Korea and tried to find an alternative of creating a unified Korea. Mm. So I think the way to think about this and to speculate, I can't get into Kim Gu's head. In early 1946, December 1945, when the trusteeship agreement is announced, Kim Gu launches uh, anti-trusteeship uh, sort of campaigns. By 1947, 1948, I think he's realizing, oh shit, Opposing the trusteeship agreement and flushing it down the toilet means there's going to be two Koreas created. The United States is going to create a, a state in the South and Soviets in the North. So by the time you get to 1948 and the UN is about to conduct elections south of the 38th parallel, he's trying to find a way out. He's like, oh, man. He's trying to find a way to sort of avoid that. And so he boycotts the elections, goes to Pyongyang, tries to figure out some other thing. And this is why the progressive historians in the 1970s, they build up Kim Gu and the Korean provisional government. Mm -hmm. It's the center-left historians who did that, who really built up Kim Gu. But maybe you can say, uh, from their point of view, they built him up a little bit too much. Um, because then what happens is it's as if in South Korea the independent the Korean provisional government equals the anti-Japanese resistance mm. and there's nothing else and that is just absolutely not true but the progressive historians 70s and 80s they built up Kim Gu uh, because it would have not, it would not certainly not have been possible to talk about leftist revolutionaries who are fighting against the Japanese Empire. You can't do that. Mm. So they built up Kim Gu. Um, yeah, and so it's a round, roundabout way to uh, answering your question. I think who mm, becomes sort of highlighted. And of course, certainly, Kim Gu is an important leader at the time. Yeah. Certainly. Uh, you know, um, yeah, that, 
it, it has its own history. And it becomes even more complicated because you say the the leftist historians of the 70s and 80s, they, they build up Kim Gu because they need to, because they want to and because they can. Also, the, the provisional government in Shanghai, there is a movement to you know start Korea, not from 1945, not from 1948, but to 1919. And president of the provisional government there is the conservative first leader, Lee Sung-man. It's been so complicated, Henry, understanding all of this and, and how it all goes together. I mean, the narrative is so difficult. Um, stepping away, uh, I, I, I did really want to get to this idea of this touches on Jeju and this touches on the Korean War and this touches on the people, the what we talk talk about as the 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 Gukmin or the Minjung, in that the number of people that have, have lost their lives, this violence in the creation of two Korean states. Now in in your talk I heard you suggest that during the Korean War more than 2 million citizens died. And this is higher than the number of military or combat casualties. We've also seen with, with the various incidents, with the various tragedies we've touched on, many other people have lost their lives in suppression of ideas and that sealing off of history that we've... How does, how does violence, how does tragedy, how does this... Uh, this loss, because it, it, it seems so brutal to me at times, and especially this, and a lot of it, which which surprises me, and, and, and do please correct me or push back where I misunderstand it or frame it incorrectly, but that it comes not from external sources directly, perhaps the external sources and powers have created the conditions for division. And yet a lot of the violence that I see comes from Koreans on Koreans, whether it's South on South or South on North and vice versa, and how that must play into to narratives or a lot of my students these days are very interested in um, intergenerational trauma. I know Honik Gwon does a lot of work on memory and, and how this plays down. Do you have any sense on the, the nature of violence and how this has played into the narrative and people's lives and particularly, as I've suggested, this may be intra-Korean violence? Yes, uh, sure. Um, Korean War at a fundamental level was a civil war. Mm. It was uh, Koreans fighting Koreans. And uh, in fact, if we look at uh, so-called Cold War, the global Cold War, and conflicts around the world, wars around the world, they were civil wars. And so I think... Uh, it's possible to think about the Cold War as a global civil war. We're talking about civil wars throughout Asia. We're talking about civil war in Greece, civil war in places like Costa Rica, Paraguay, Argentina, Chile, Vietnam, you name it. These mm. are civil wars. Mm. The global Cold War was a global civil war. Um, that's one thing. The other thing about violence, um, can you think of any state that was not created through violence? No, not off the top of I my head. The, I mean, I, 
it's hard for me to think of a state that was not created through violence. States are created through violence. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it's especially violent because it's in the context of a civil war where two state people who are trying to establish state, they're establishing two competing states. Mm. Um, and so it creates a situation where citizenship is impossible. Where, you know, especially during the Korean War, depending on what part of Korea you had to be living in. Like if we think about the middle of Korea, Chorwon, for example, mm. it changes hands something like 23 times or something, right? So this area, this village might be occupied by the Korean People's Army and then by the uh, ROK Army. It changes hands 23 times, 26 times or something like that. Every time it changes hands, I, I, I have to think there's nobody can remain you know, in that area. Um, even in even in Seoul, CIA estimates something like what something like. Well, one of the myths, South Korean myths, is everybody tried to leave or everybody left or tried to leave Seoul. That's just not true. American CIA estimate is something like ten percent. South Korean history uh, estimates are much higher. Maybe maybe even 25%. But there's also agreement that of the people who left, the vast majority are those who had originally come from the North because they have fled the North. Now that the KPA is, you know, come, uh, across the 38th parallel, mm. they're, they're afraid and they're leaving. Which is to say the vast majority of people in Seoul stayed. But when UN and ROK forces retake the capital, you have to explain why you didn't leave, right? Whether you put the DPRK flag on, over your door, whether you sang certain songs, whether you you know joined a certain organ, et cetera, et cetera. It's in a con it's in a situation where, in order to protect your family, you have to inform on a neighbor, and so. It's uh, a situation where neighborly trust is one of the, one of the um, things that die uh, in the Korean War. That's it's not a person or it's not a community, but it's a value that dies during the war. The, the value of neighborly trust. That's there is that's, an idea also that. You know, hopefully the only people you can trust are, are your family. But even then, sometimes there are political differences in the family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I believe that's what some historians say makes it even more painful. But that, that, that this was a culture or a people that had that family, that had that genealogy, that had that focus on community and interdependence that, that made the divisional violence even more even more painful than it would have been. Yeah, and I think so. And going back to the, the conversation about students, uh, when I teach a course on the Korean War, I would ask the students from Korea, 
you know, uh, what kind of stories are handed down in your family about the Korean War? Virtually unanimously, there are no family, there are no stories that come down to their generation about the Korean War. And so my, my question would be, well, do you think it's because your great-grandparents and your grandparents' generation, nothing really happened to them during the Korean War? Chances are some pretty dramatic and maybe horrific things happened. And it was a choice that not just their family, but families just across society decided these stories need not and should not be handed down to the next generation. Um, that amnesia is not just, it, it, was a, it was a decision made by previous generation that they're just not going to tell their children and their children's children of things, things that happened precisely because they're so horrific. Then I asked them, um, maybe it's good not to know. Um, maybe there are certain stories that are too terrible that it's better not to know them. And that's probably why it was not handed down. So let's say you have a choice. You can know or just as you are now, just not know. Almost unanimously, the students raise their, raise their hands and say, they would like to know, even if the stories were horrible. It's a fascinating question that you ask them whether they have heard stories come down because some of my students will say that, you know, my grandmother is from North Korea or something like that, but they won't venture anywhere beyond just that identity. And even that's a bit of a, a gobek or a confession. That's um, probably because that, that's all they know. That's all they heard. <laughs> my grandfather came from, my grandmother came from the North. And that, that's, that's all they know. Mm. David, could I ask a favor here? Yes. I need to, I need to go to the restroom. Please. Can I go to the restroom and come back? Yeah. It's going to take about three minutes. Perfect. Okay. Sorry. The very first question that you uh, began with, began the interview with, mm. I just didn't know where to start. <laughs> so, I mean, like, just, all right, where, 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 how do I, or where do I sort of begin to sort of answer, get, get at this question? So, well, it's, of course, it's up to you, but if you could just lop that off, that would, that would be. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. We're getting somewhere, though. It's, it's taken a couple of, uh, I, I feel like, you know. <laughs> It's marvelous. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Um, can I ask you about North Korea, Henry? Like, what is North Korea? You said that some of your students love studying ancient history, and that's controversial and has its own things, or modern history. A lot of the, especially the international students that I teach when they come here, they're fascinated by North Korea and they're interested in it. And I get this sense that they're young and they think they can solve the problem that, you know, just through this perspective, it's this enigma in a conundrum in a puzzle or, or something like that that really draws them to it but then the idea of what north korea is is it the last bastion of the joseon dynasty is it a is it a communist state is it just the north korean people is it a kleptomaniac you know gerontocracy of old rulers are they your brothers and sisters 
Can you give us an idea what North Korea is, Henry? Um, just like South Korea, I think. Um, North Korea today is very different from what North Korea was in 1948. I think uh, North Korea up through maybe, well, the Korean War well, um, obviously was huge. And then after the 1950s, North Korea again sort of shifts. Um, so so, so I, I think um, just like South Korea, uh, North Korea is always changing. Mm. South Korea today obviously is not uh, the South Korea of 1948. Um, South Korea today is a democracy, uh, prosperous. Uh, it doesn't mean it's always going to be so. South Korea in 1948 was not a democracy and it was not prosperous. Mm. Um, North Korea did, I mean, it uh, recovered from the Korean War faster um, than South Korea did. American CIA estimates as you know, as late as like early like 1971 or something. Um, in terms of per, cap per capita uh, income, like per capita size of the economy, mm. um, United States, Japan is sort of in a separate category, but North Korea just came right after Taiwan and uh, South Korea was fourth. Of course, you know, historically, South Korea has a much bigger population than the, than the North. And so the size of the economy itself, like, but per capita, North Korea certainly did better uh, than South Korea. Probably, so you always have to, I think, sort of discount CIA estimates because there's a tendency for intelligence agencies to overestimate the strength of the enemy. Yeah. Uh, it's in their bureaucratic interest to do so. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly, you know, North Korea recovered um, faster, um, and it was doing relatively well. 1990s and the famine—that's that's, that's um, that was a new situation, right? Mm -hmm. What the, the Russian economy plunged by about thirty percent. Uh, with the sort of shock therapy, I guess it was called, mm. shift from sort of socialist to free market capitalist economy kind of thing. You had something comparable, but also something that was um, um, an anomaly. Because if you think about famines, historically famines happened uh, in situations of war in situations of uh, in colonial situations, mm -hmm. um, in situation of um, collectivization uh, under uh, under communism, North Korea's famine doesn't fit into any of those categories. So, I mean, for example, in Bengal, let's say under British colonial rule, the 
uh, tens of thousands of people starved, not because there was not enough food, but because they didn't have money, enough money to buy the food. The British, in fact, exported food. And so people like um, economists like Amir Sen, who won the Nobel Prize for work on, mm. you know, it's famines. Uh, people die in famines, not because there's not enough food, but it's politics. Because the, the government uh, is not democratic, right? The British let those people starve. Mm. Just watch them starve to death. So this is sort of the, has now the, I mean, obviously Amerta Sen's uh, work and his sort of, uh, uh, sort of motivation, motivating sort of ethos is exemplary. It's a humanistic, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but at some level, uh, I think, and as Meredith Wu Cummings have, has done, Meredith Wu ha, has done, question the, the idea that famine has to do with regime type. That democracy, in democracies, you do not have famines. I think that has to be slightly revised. So Amirta Sen's argument, of course, is, of course, you have hunger and people who don't have enough to eat in India. But his argument is, because India is a democracy with uh, you know, a free press and competing uh, political uh, parties, et cetera, that it never gets to the stage of like tens or hundreds of thousands of people starving to death. Mm. Uh, because you just have to do something, whatever it might be. And so it's sort of on that idea that um, famine has to do with regime type. And therefore, I, although I think many of the people who say that are not aware of uh, Amerta Sen's work, said North Korea starves its own people. Right? Um, And I think the work of people like uh, Meredith Wu and others have shown sometimes there really is just, you know, uh, lack of food. And, and so the argument would be North Korea's, the famine in North Korea in the 1990s is an anomaly because um, what Amerita Sen work does not take into consideration is a situation in which the entire economy just collapses. And that happened. that's what happened in North Korea mm. with um, basically starting with uh, oil. Russia, no more subsidized oil. You have to pay for it in hard cash, etc. And so uh, cutting off oil meant the the industry, industrial sector, slowly just comes to a grinding halt. North Korea's agriculture had been um, sort of intensive farming, intensive farming in the sense of, of course, not just the tr use of tractors, but also intensive application of fertilizer. Um, but fertilizer is petroleum-based. 
no oil, and the factories that produce fertilizer stops, uh, and there's no oil for tractors, etc. It starts with the industrial sector, and it's going to go to the agricultural sector. The entire uh, economy collapses. You're in a situation where, you know, at a certain point, let's say you're in a factory somewhere in North Korea, and you have to eat. You have to get some food. You have a situation where there were cases where workers were just stripping copper wiring from the factory, crossing the border into China to sell that copper wire mm. for food kind of thing. North Korea at the time appealed for help. It's a break from the past. They appealed for food. They made an international appeal. United States, South Korea provided some, and it was also a time of the, you know, the basic agreement, basic framework that was signed between United States and North Korea. And if you look at that agreement, uh, it'll tell you, and that you know, you you get the sense that North Korea always cheats on the agreements it signed. Look at the 1994 agreement. We have to get that that kind of history straight. We can talk about that later, but mm. it was a situ situation where South Korea and the United States wasn't that enthusiastic about uh, providing food and helping North Korea out because communist regimes were had collapsed in Eastern Europe. It seemed like uh, North Korea is going to go next. Why? Why would you want to, like, help it uh, sort of sustain itself? Mm. So, you know, this notion: North Korea always cheats on the agreements. North Korea uh, starves its own people. Um, that's also not certainly not the uh, entire picture mm. i believe in the north korean narrative they would point to the united states reneging on the agreement not to introduce special weapons back onto the peninsula they saw that one as one of the first breakings of of treaties between them that's january 1958 right yeah yeah and then with the you you mentioned the 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 agreed framework of nineteen ninety four with the, mm -hmm. with the the hydro water I, I've lost the word now the, the supply light water reactors right that, so yeah, there thanks. are three components to that agreement one was that the graphite reactor that they had would be shut down and then you know uh, you would have IAEA inspectors with cameras installed and so forth that's what the United States wanted first and they got it first. The second and third was, you know, um, um, established kind of like, um, I forget the exact wording, but the, the was it second or the third one that was sort of key for North Korea in agreeing to sign this. Mm. And that was normalization of relations with um, the United States. Oh, and the third one was... Um, you know, two light water reactors. The difference is 
the old graphite-based um, uh, uh, nuclear reactor produces waste. Waste that can be sort of refined into plutonium. Plutonium that becomes the primary sort of isotope for making a nuclear warhead. Uh, and so for, the, for North Korea, these graphite nuclear reactors um, produces electricity. And as we said, the energy sector is the key for the, the crisis in North Korea in the uh, 1990s. And so North Korea was to shut down the graphite reactor. Shutting down a reactor means you're going to lose that much electricity as kind of temporary kind of thing, United States would provide heavy oil. Heavy oil so that, you know, it's something that can be used for heating, but it's not something that can be easily sort of refined or something to be used that would have a military use. Mm -hmm. So you had these shipments, some of which were uh, late of heavy oil and the promise of building two light water reactors, light water reactors because the the waste uh, created by the light water reactor, you can't, it's much, much, much more difficult to uh, process plutonium from something like that. And so the promise was, you shut down the graphite reactors, we build you two light water reactors and we'll normalize relations. DPRK signed that agreement. United States, uh, did not take real steps toward normalizing relations with North Korea. In terms of the light water reactor, an organization was created. Uh, the ground was cleared, but that was all. Mm -hmm. So on the question of North Korea always cheats on its agreements. So that was signed in 1994. I think, where is it? 2000, 2001, around there. North Koreans tell the American uh, uh, Americans, by the way, we have this uranium enrichment program, right? And then the United States just reacts and says, okay, you violated the agreement. If not in, in uh, literally then in spirit, et cetera, et cetera. Personally speaking, it was a lost opportunity because in, in the United States, I think the incentive for using a lot of political capital to deal with uh, the Korea question is just not there. Mm. It's incomparable to, let's say, the attention that American politicians have to sort of pay to let's say the Middle East. And so it was a lost opportunity to a significant extent uh, on the US part, I think. But you know, that's just ignored. Mm. And the assumption is it's always the DPRK that cheats. It's always what that does, what that false history does it limits the horizon of what you think is possible. What politician would 
spend political capital to sign another agreement with North Korea if everybody thinks it's always North Korea that cheats. Perhaps if uh, President Bill Clinton had another four years, there might have been more movement that way. Right? I know it seems like he had the choice between working on Korea or the Israel-Palestine, and there was talk of him going to Pyongyang as a sitting president. And um, I heard uh, with regard establishing normalizations of relations that America, they had the office uh, and Paul Revere was going to be the first ambassador. They had it all, so into, uh, all sorted out, but then a story about a young woman and a cigar and a and an impeachment for President Clinton uh, took away some of his political power there. You have George W. Bush, the axis of evil speech. Henry, I, I, I could talk about North Korea and China, and I wanted, there's so much more I want to do with you. But time, we have a time commitment here for you. So I'd like to, if I can, in these last 10 minutes, just ask you two different questions. The, the, the first one of this closing questions is, what advice do you have for, for young people these days? So you obviously have many undergraduate students, and I can tell they're very fortunate to be in your classes and learning from you and studying from you as I have done today. But for those not in your classes, uh, for those growing up in, in, in the 21st century, what advice would you have for these young people? What would you tell, for example, a 20-year-old Henry M trying to make his way in the world today? I see. Um, I think many other people have said this, but um, on the one hand, when I see you know young people in south korea today you know 20 year olds i say mm. the 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 kind of things that uh, the kind of life they can enjoy was for me like would have for somebody like me unimaginable for one thing you know uh, growing up in the united states and then later I would never have imagined that Korea would be considered as a cool place. I had a colleague when I was teaching at the University of Michigan, she taught, um, she teaches Japanese history. Mm. And uh, she had gone to the United States to study as a foreign student, Yuhaksen, in the early 1960s. And we were talking about something and she mentioned that, yeah, you know, I'm glad I don't have to be, you know, ashamed about eating sushi anymore. So I that was I was taken aback and I said, What? You were ashamed of eating sushi? Yeah, you know, back in the 60s, you know, the idea that the Japanese eat raw fish. Mm. Yeah. And and that she's glad she doesn't have to be ashamed about eating sushi. That was a very different world. It was the, I was 28 years old in, and, uh, in the United States when I saw a glossy magazine, a Korean American glossy magazine, uh, you know, with sort of like runway model and so forth. So it's English language mm. and Korean American. David, you know, in the United States, I had never until that moment seen a beautiful Korean person on TV uh, in a movie or even in print. 
I was 28 years old when I saw for the very first time in a mass media a beautiful Korean person. So these are in the United States. People, these younger people, these young people, 20-year-olds in South Korea, they're growing up uh, in a world where lots of young people around the world think South Korea is really cool. Yeah. They have this, right? Um, that's on the one hand. And all the kind of different things that can be done. I mean, I'm envious of these young, young people on the one hand. Yeah. On the other hand, I know it's, I think it's a lot harder for young people these days. Just, uh, and the kind of pressures and stresses they're under. No? Um, I think it's a lot harder for them. And if we think about like, um, like economic history, big book recently published by this, I forget his name, at Stanford. He, he's talking about this uh, historical period from roughly like 1870 to about 2010. Hmm. And there's an end point, 2010. It says where you had this period of economic growth and change that was obviously unprecedented in human history. Between 1870 and 2010, the world changed more dramatically than in the previous you know, millennia. Mm. Ends of, right? And I, I think it's true. Just change and the pace of change, it's crazy how much the world changed between 1870 to 2010. But this economic historian has an endpoint, 2010. Things are slowing down. Um, I think for the young people today, the kind of world and the kind of challenges that they would be facing with, you know, going from climate change to the dangers of the questions of war and peace, and a looming conflict between uh, China and the United States in Asia. Uh, they're, um, they're facing, um, yes, South Korea is cool. And young people all over the world come to Korea with these sort of visions and illusions in their heads. But the young people today are growing up in a, in a very stressful uh, world where the possibilities of like tremendous crisis and war, uh, there's, there's a, I think, a fairly high possibility, if not probability, that, um, yeah, this, this, this is a moment that's not going to last. I thought that oh, might that's be very depressing. Note. <laughs> There's a line from um, I wasn't expecting that, and I like things that I'm not expecting. There's a line from sometimes attributed to Slavoj Žižek, sometimes to Frederick Jameson. Mark Fisher uses it as the first line of his book Capitalist Realism. The line is, "It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism." 
And if you tell that to young 20 year olds today, they go, yeah, because they can imagine nuclear fallout, global climate change. They can imagine zombies. All of these exist in, in their mind as possibilities. And it's kind of, it, it takes me back to know that they, they live with those because growing up in the eighties and nineties and twenties, it was, there was so much possibility and endless growth always seemed it would be this way to for the for the very last question i'm starting a new tradition with you henry i've always had this previous question but for the last question i would like you please to ask a question about korea to the next guest now on this podcast i i have professors and pop stars and young people and old people and all sorts so any question you like, but a question about Korea it can be deep, it can be shallow, it can be personal or academic, but could you suggest, please, a question about Korea that I will ask the next guest? That, oh my goodness, I would have to think about that one. Mm, a question about Korea. Yeah. Well, and whoever that guest might be. We'll so I, I'm it. sort of take, taking a circuitous route where who who would be really cool to have the next guest and <laughs> and then uh, have that person answer this particular question? Yeah. Uh, hmm. Hmm. And you're the first person to ask what this to start this new tradition. So no pressure. It can be anything, Henry. Uh, David, I think you have to be a little bit patient with me, and you can edit this part part out, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, a question. Oh. Hmm. Um, there is the okay. Mm, I'm not sure who your next guest will be. Good. But um, do you think South South Korea would ever pass the anti discrimination law? Yeah, what a perfect question. What a perfect <laughs> question. Henry, uh, because of the time, thank you so much for today. I, I, I can't tell you honestly how much I enjoyed it, and I really did. I, I learned so much, but also I, I, I've referenced your work and read your work so much, like doing my own studies and academic writing. So uh, even though it was virtually, to, to, to finally interact with you was a great honor. Uh, I hope to do it in person one day once I've had a shave and things like that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this conversation also. It was uh, really uh, enjoyable uh, for me to be involved in this, uh, be in this conversation with you, David. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you me. very much. Thank you.